Good morning. Um, the, the song in that video is one of my favorite hymns, How Can I Keep From Singing. It was actually sung by one of my oldest childhood friends, so it's fun to, to see how God's using her ministry as well. Um, I love that song so much, I thought before we got started this morning, we'd use it as our opening prayer, so please pray with me. My life flows on in endless song, above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet, though far off hymn, that hails a new creation. What though my joys and comforts die, the Lord my Savior liveth. What though the darkness gather round, songs in the night he giveth. Through all the turmoil and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul, how can I keep from singing? No storm can shake my inmost calm, while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? I lift my eyes, the cloud grows thin. I see the blue above it. And day by day this pathway smooths, since first I learned to love it. Through all the turmoil and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. How can I keep from singing? Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? Amen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Peter 1. I'll be reading verses 3 to 9. 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Book of First Peter is one of the most read books worldwide by Christians. It's most read because of who Peter was. One of the things I love about Peter is you see the power of God working through a transformed life. So you remember when we first meet Peter, he's a fisherman. And depending on which gospel you read, you know he was one of the first followers of Jesus because Jesus saw them and says, hey, you, follow me. But if you read all the gospels, you find that it was a little bit more complicated than that. You might first read that there's no Peter without Andrew, his brother, who was a follower of John the Baptist. Andrew goes to John. John says, no, it's not about me. Jesus is the Messiah. And Andrew, with that childlike face, says, okay, we will follow Jesus. And he goes and he spends time with Jesus. And then he goes to Peter. He's like, Peter, I got to tell you about this Jesus. But you could tell Peter wasn't yet sold. In the Gospels, you read that Jesus told him there will be fisher of men. But before that, in one of the Gospels, you find out that Jesus was doing what Jesus does, preaching, talking to the people. And without really asking for permission, he jumps in Peter's boat. Now, you have to understand that Peter, as a fisherman, was probably out all night, was trying to catch a fish. And, and, and now he's probably thinking through, you know, I got to go home and tell my wife I didn't catch anything. And this Jesus guy who I don't really know is down in my book talking, more people keep coming, you know. 
But after that, you know, Jesus looks at Peter and he says, what's going on? And Peter probably gives him his sob story. We've been out all night, you know, trying to get fish and we caught nothing. Now, what we have to understand about fishermen, whenever I think of fishermen in the, the New Testament, I'm reminded of my father-in-law, who I don't know if he's got Ben um, Franklin's almanac memorized, but the man could just look at the clouds and tell you the weather for the next three days, right? Fishermen knew their craft. And one of the things I love about this story with Jesus and Peter is that God tends to show up in our everyday scenes. God tends to show up in the regular that we're doing. And that's where God shows up with Peter. And Jesus says, what's going on? And Peter says, well, we've been out all night. We can't catch anything. And Jesus says, oh, Really? That's interesting. Where's your net? Peter says, this is my net. And you have to understand, Jesus is a carpenter. Peter is a fisherman. Peter's got the PhD. Jesus is learning. And Jesus says, no, no, throw it outside and, and throw it in it. And Peter's like, well, we've been out all night. We didn't catch anything. Jesus says, just do it. And he does it, right? And they pull out the fish. And the catch is so big that he has to yell to his business partners, James and John. And they run over and they drop it into the fish. And, and obviously they're amazed, right? Out all night, two boats, four fishermen who knew what they were doing, caught nothing. The carpenter comes. They catch all this fish. And they're amazed, right? And what I love most about this Jesus, Jesus almost looks at them. And he's like, oh, you think that's amazing? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and women. Right? And that's where we meet Peter. And later on, as we go through the Gospels, you find Peter then becomes in the inner circle of Jesus. For those of you who've been with us for a while, you know it took me like five years to get through 1 John, right? We talk about how John was on the inner circle. Peter was also on the inner circle. So when you think back to the Mount of Transfiguration, where the inner circle looked up and like, oh my gosh, he's with Elijah and Moses. He must be a prophet. Until God says, no, 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 that's my son, and he's your God. You remember Gethsemane. I love Gethsemane because I don't know about you, but I had a hard time growing up trying to be Jesus and trying to figure out how he does this. You know, they explained to me he was God and man, but the more I read through the scriptures, he just seemed like God to me. I couldn't walk on water. I couldn't heal people. I just struggled with that. But you know who I never struggled to be like was Peter, right? Because remember at Gethsemane, Jesus to me has his most human moment. This is when I finally got, oh, he really was human. And the reason I say that is because at Gethsemane, remember, Jesus his whole life knew he was going to the cross, right? And yet when it came the moment of time in Gethsemane, he looked at his father and says, Father, not my will, but your be done. But are you sure? You sure this has to happen? Is there any other way? And the Bible says, you know, there was angels that were sent to strengthen him, and he was sweating, and it was like drops of blood. And you know what it reminded me of? People on their wedding day. Because think about it, right? In theory, you've planned this out. In theory, you love the person, and they love you too, in theory. In theory, you've planned this whole day and you're ready, right? But then it's like, why do we get nervous? It's almost like we get so nervous, it's like you met the person 10 minutes ago, right? Why do we get nervous? And I think Gethsemane actually taught me that we get nervous because as humans, we might have all these dreams, right? But that's the day where you have to answer the dream, right? As a kid, you might dream of this spouse, but now you have to accept this person, right? And I think until you accept your reality, you struggle, and I think that's what happened in Gethsemane. Jesus might have known his whole life that he was going to the cross, but until he says, not my will, but your will be done, until he accepts that destiny, he isn't freed. But Peter, 
not only fell asleep at Gethsemane, my favorite story of Peter, you've ever heard me preach, I use this all the time because it blows me away to this day. What I love about Peter is when Jesus walked on water. Again, I read that story, I'm like, well, he's God. That's not even a miracle, right? I remember my Sunday school teacher just exasperated, just like, isn't it great? Like, Jesus walked on water, what a miracle. And I remember being like seven years old, being like, but didn't he make the world? Like, honestly, like, if he made the world, like, is this really a miracle? Like, I mean, let's think about this. She didn't really, that didn't go over too well. But for me, what the miracle always was was that Peter was a person like me. And I love this story because the 11 other disciples are cool, right? Like, this one, this one passage in Scripture that you don't have to struggle to understand what's going on, right? Like, there's a figure coming towards them, and they say something very elaborate, like, look, a ghost, right? And what I love about the story is Jesus says, no, no, it's me, right? And the other 11 are like, oh, cool, yeah, Jesus, come on down. And Peter's like, are you sure? Because if you're sure it's you, I want to walk like you. And I love Peter because he's this man of action, right? I want to walk like you. If it's really you, I want to come out the boat and walk like you. And what a great story that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can walk on water. And we take our eyes off Jesus, we start to slip. He's there to pick us back up. But what I love about Peter is that he's a man of action in his early years. You remember when they came to arrest Jesus? That's my other favorite one. There's this whole Roman battalion trained, the best military in the world at that time. They're going to take the carpenter and his 11 friends and maybe a couple other stragglers, right? This whole battalion comes, and Peter finds one little sword. He's like, I got this, Jesus. I got this. And in his hurry at being a man of action, he chops off Malchus's ear, right? And then in a very beautiful passage, Jesus takes the ear and heals it back and then surrenders to the authorities. Peter, this man of action, grows into the Pentecost preacher, You know, we often talk about how Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus predicted it. We talk about Jesus coming to the shore to restore him. But personally, I think the restoration happened way before then. I think Jesus came to the shore not to restore him, but to call him to the ministry that was to go forward. Where I think Peter was restored was when he looked up at the cross and saw Jesus on the cross. I wish Judas had saw Jesus on the cross. Because I think if he had looked up and saw the Savior's eyes, he would have known love and forgiveness. He would have been set free. And I think where Peter was restored was when he looked up and saw Jesus dying for his sins. He knew not only did I mess up, but he still loves me. He died for me. I can be redeemed. And Peter grows to be this Pentecost preacher, which I think is the greatest sermon ever. If you don't agree, you're just wrong. Peter gives this sermon where he just recounts who Jesus was, what Jesus done, what Jesus calls us to do. And you have to understand, this was during the days of Passover. The Jews had spread all over the known world, and they would all come to Jerusalem. Aren't you grateful we don't have one city? That's one of the things I love about Christianity. Every three or four hundred years, our main city changes, right? Like, we don't have one city. It's great. But the Jews had Jerusalem. So they came from all over the world. They land in Jerusalem. And Peter preaches this sermon, this sermon that birthed the church, the church that now was already multicultural, multiracial, and all over the world. You know, a lot of times we talk about the church being diverse. People are like, this is new. Yes, in Genesis to Revelation. There's 3,000 people from the world over, from Africa, from parts of Asia, the Middle East, even Europe. Y'all got a little bit too. 
But they come and they hear the gospel, and Peter preaches, and 3,000 people come to a saving knowledge. But they don't just stay in Jerusalem. They go out into the world. Peter, this Pentecost preacher, had now grown into the church father. Some people believe he was the first original church father. He was the apostle of Jesus who was listed first. And if you go through the scriptures, oftentimes when they make a list of the apostles, Peter appears first. He had this, this prominence that was given upon him. But what I love most about 1 Peter is that Peter's not working, writing as a church father. He's not writing as a, as a pope, as some traditions might call him. He's not even writing as an apostle first. He's writing as a pastor who cares for his children. And to me, that's inspirational. It's not about all the things he had been through. It's not about all the, the positions he had held. It's not even about his closeness to Jesus. It's about his love for his people. And he writes this letter to a church and Christians that are under persecution, Christians that are under pain, Christians that are under the whole power of the state. And Peter writes a pastoral word of encouragement and hope. What were they suffering? Now, the, the craziest part about this is if it wasn't the fact that they were killing us as Christians, this would actually be funny what they were killing us for, right? But then how, much, how often does war ever make sense? They were killing them because they called them slanderous. They slandered them and called them incestuous. You know why? Because they talked about loving their brother and sister. They were killing them because they called them cannibals. Why? Because they talked about eating the body and drinking the blood of Jesus. And they killed them because they were scapegoated. Rome had a fire to destroy a pretty decent part of the city. And guess who was there to pick on the Christians? And this is why they were being killed. And Peter writes to them saying, the troubles are coming and the troubles are here. My sisters and my brothers, take heart. The trials and the persecution are coming and they are here. My sisters and brothers, take heart. The reason persecuted Christians all around the world hold on to 1 Peter is because they can say the troubles and the trials and the persecution have arrived, but in Christ Jesus, we can be free. We can take heart. And I think it's a great lesson to all of us who are so blessed that we might not know real trial or persecution or real trouble maybe as it seems. But the message to all of us is always take heart. Because as long as you're a Christian, there will be things in this world that troubles you. As long as you're a Christian, there will be trials that come to test your faith. As long as you're a Christian, there will be persecution. Take heart. In 1 Peter 1, this passage we just read, Peter does something very beautiful here, right? It's easy to miss, but it's beautiful. He goes to the basics of their culture. One of the fascinating things I think that we as Christians struggle with is like, what to do with culture? What to do with culture? But sometimes it's good to take a step back and realize that people form culture, and we are people. We can form culture. We don't have to fear culture. In fact, we can use culture to learn things about God because that's what Peter does here. He uses three different things that it's easy to gloss over, right? He says, we the church, we the people of God, we have been chosen by the Father, amen. We've been sanctified by the Spirit, amen. We've been saved by Jesus Christ himself. It sounds great, but if you were a first century Christian, you would have heard chosen by the Father. You know, I've used this example before. In the Old Testament, Moses, when he looked at Israel, he looked at the people of God, he was trying to explain to them how much God loves them, right? And he says, you are his treasured possession. The closest definition or explanation we got from that is simply this. Some of us who budget, wait, all of us should budget, right? 
when you do your budget, you usually have the expenses, you have the, the incoming, and then you have like savings, and you have tithing. You have your nice little pie chart, hopefully, right? Or at least an Excel spreadsheet. Or your bank does it for you, and you at least check it once a day. Something, right? But within your budget, hopefully, right, depending on where you are in life, right, for some of us, it might be $5, right? For some of us, it might be $50. Some of us might be a little bit more. But usually within our budget, you got that little slice, right, that little piece, right, that you can spend on yourself and not feel guilty about, right? You don't have to come home and be like, honey, I bought an ice cream for myself, right? You got that little piece of that $5 that you can save for yourself, right? The idea of treasured possession is simply this. The feeling that you feel about that $5 when you buy that ice cream and eat it for the first time. That's how God feels about you. That's how much God loves you. How you love that freedom. How you love that I can do anything with my $5. I can feel good and not have to worry. That's how much God loves you. You are his treasured possession. You have been chosen by the Father. He talks about being sanctified by the Spirit. And what a blessing, sisters and brothers, that all of us in this room who've chosen to follow Jesus have been sanctified by the Spirit. The Spirit of God that hovered over the earth when it was created now lives in you. The Spirit of God at the Old Testament people worried. David himself says, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We are blessed this morning. The Holy Spirit now resides in you. But the Old Testament example was that they were sprinkled and they needed to sprinkle the blood to be set free. And Paul Peter says, no, 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 we don't get a sprinkling of the Spirit, we get all of the Spirit. We get all of the Spirit, and we're saved by Jesus. And you have to understand, you know, we have a very terrible understanding of salvation, right? For most of us growing up in North America, when we think about salvation, we go straight to the cross, right? And I know you guys don't do this, but some of us watch movies, right? This would be the equivalent of me picking a random five minutes in the middle of the movie, telling you about it, and be like, good, now you don't have to watch it, right? That's how we think about salvation if we go straight to the cross. When the Old Testament people and the New Testament people, when the Old Testament dreamed of the Messiah, when they walked with Jesus after he died, what they understand of salvation wasn't just the cross. Your salvation was a step-by-step process, and it started with the God in heaven sending his son on earth for you. Salvation started with the God in heaven sending his son on earth for you, and then that son, Jesus Christ, living in a way to show you how you can please God. Your salvation wasn't just a cross. It was God on high, became human, walked the earth, knew how to please God, and then he went to the cross to die for your sins. But salvation didn't end there. Their understanding was God on high, came in this earth, walked the earth, showed us how to live in a way to please God, died on the cross for our sins, and praised God after three days, was raised again, is alive, and intercedes for us. That's the salvation message. We cheapen the work of God if we think salvation is only about the cross. Because guess what? God thinks you matter so much he sent his son. God thinks you matter so much his son will teach you how to live. God thinks he matters so much that he did go to the cross. But praise God he didn't stop at the cross. Praise God he's alive today. Praise God he stands before the Father as your intercessor. And because of all this, Peter writes for the people to praise God in suffering. Praise God for all of us who know Christ, know a new birth. All of us who know Christ are blessed to not just have the spirit within, but our holiness is in Jesus Christ. Praise God that all of us have been converted into a new creation, a new people. And I think if we just want to be real about it, we can sit here this morning and say, praise God, I'm not who I was. 
Praise God for making me who I am. But praise God that one day he will make me who he's always wanted me to be. We are a new creation, amen? amen. And we need to praise God in suffering because we have a living hope. Now, for a lot of us, when we think about hope, we go straight to heaven, and that's wonderful. Heaven will be great. But people who are suffering don't just need to dream of heaven. They need help today. And when they talk about a living hope in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they talk about the fact that within Christ, within God, you can have life today. You can have that abundant life today. And the way you know it is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God is alive. You can be alive. God can set you free. We no longer have to be defined by our past and our mistakes. We no longer have to be defined by where we fall short. We no longer have to be defined by the world around us. We can be defined by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And because he's alive, he can make us alive. So wherever we're struggling with this morning, wherever there's deadness this morning, praise God, he's seen it before. But praise God even louder, he's resurrected people before. And he can bring you to life this morning. The living hope doesn't start when you get to heaven. The living hope starts when you say yes to Jesus Christ. And then he talks about inheritance. He says, your inheritance, you need to praise God in suffering because your inheritance is never spoiled and is kept in heaven for you. Now, most of us have a, a pretty different understanding from inheritance than what I think Peter was talking about. When I was in college, I was about 19 or 20, I had two friends. And it was fascinating because my one friend, his mother had, um, had gotten cancer. I remember we were sitting there trying to figure out how to support him and, and like how to be there for him, how to pray for him, and let him just get, get everything out, you know? I remember he was like fighting the tears, and I was like, yo, listen, you're allowed to cry on this one. Like, this is, this is okay, you know, you can let that out, right? But I remember in hearing his story, what was stunning to me wasn't the fact that she got cancer. What was stunning to me wasn't the fact that he knew that if anything happened and she died, she was going to be with the Lord. What was stunning to me was he was worried about him being left behind because he realized that with treatments, they're going to go into debt, that if his mom died, he would have to borrow money and drop out of school just to pay for the bills for her funeral. And what was stunning to me is after he verbalized all that, I started realizing, oh, yeah, if my people died too, that's on me, huh? I started realizing for some of us, when we think of inheritance, we think, oh, someone died and we get stuff. But some of us, when we think about inheritance, it's stuff that we inherit that's not so good, right? Sometimes our inheritance might be from the actions of others. And here's the thing. The reason I wanted to start there is because one of the worst theologies we can hold on to is that we have inherited suffering based on what we've done. We suffer based on our sin, or we suffer based on our parents' sin, or we suffer because we deserve it. You do not inherit sin and suffering. You do not inherit suffering based on your actions. You inherit suffering because this world's not as it should be, because people are struggling to do good, and sometimes we're evil, because Satan is still the prince of the power of the air trying to strike down God's elect. But sin and inheritance isn't just also the good stuff. Because I remember in the middle of this conversation, me and my friend are now both crying. You know, he's crying over his mom. I'm crying over God. Protect my people. I don't want to quit school. I don't want to go into debt. I'm 19. But I remember our other friend is sitting there quietly, stoically. And we look over to him. We're like, at least fake a tear. You know, like this is like important, you know. 
And my friend then started slowly and slowly, and then he started crying uncontrollably. And we're like, yo, I mean, she's alive. Like, she's not dead yet. Like, she's okay. I remember my friend saying, no, no, I just realized that if your parents died, you both go into debt. If my parents die, I'm a multimillionaire tomorrow. And my first thought was like, well, I'm glad we're friends. But the reason I'm thinking about inheritance is because we sometimes think inheritance is just something that we get that's bad, that's passed down, generational curses, or something that someone else earned for us. Even as Christians, we, we can kind of confuse, like, you know, we talk about our crowns in heaven, what we get because of all the good works we've done, right? Peter seems to think inheritance isn't because of what you've done, right? Inheritance is because of what Jesus did. And that's why it won't spoil. And that's why it's in heaven being kept for you. Because your inheritance is not based on your goodness. It's not based on where you fell short. It's not based on anything you've earned. It's only based on Jesus Christ. And he talks about praising God and suffering because he says, you know what? Our God will shield you with his power. I love that because when you read about the martyrs, you know, when I was in high school, there was um, probably the, not even probably, what am I talking about? Let me be sure. The greatest Christian album ever released was by a little band called DC Talk called Jesus Freak. See, there's two people who believe. The rest of you will pray for you. It's about intercession this morning. We'll pray for you. But what I love about this album is that after all the plaudits, right, and it was fascinating for me because this Christian band was appearing on quote-unquote secular TV, and back then that was a big thing, right? And I remember after they won the Grammys and all the awards, I remember in 1999 they released a book, right, called Jesus Freaks. I remember in that book it was actually done in, um, in partnership with Voice of the Martyrs. Right? And that book was the gener my generation. That was our introduction. Because I don't know about you, have you ever tried to read the original Fox's Book of the Martyrs from the 15th or 16th century? Like, you think the story of people dying for Jesus is hard? Try reading the Old English. Right? And what I love about the Jesus Freaks book was that it was in plain English, and you heard story after story of people around the world who have suffered and who have died for their faith. And all of them would almost always have this theme of not worry about their present suffering because they saw Christ in glory. They were shielded by God. Now, I think that's important for us because all of us in this room our suffering might not be the suffering as experienced in Pakistan or Nigeria, in Indonesia, or in Somalia. But all of us need to know that whatever trials we face, we can keep our eyes on Jesus. Whatever persecution you're struggling with, you can turn to Jesus. And whatever pain you're going through, God's seen it before, God's healed it before, God's resurrected it before. We can be shielded in God's power. So when the suffering comes, when the grief and trials and the sorrow comes, we can praise God. Why? Because they'll only last for a night and the joy will come in the morning. When the suffering comes, we need to look to God because suffering can prove our faith in God, right? We suffer and it can remind us that we actually need God. Because some of us have this lie that we love to live that we're in control, or we know what's going on. Or God, you can be on a need-to-know basis, right? Like when you need to know something, I'll give it to you. But suffering kind of unmasks all that because it forces us to run back to Jesus. When you're weak, he can be strong. But you have to be weak before him. And sometimes suffering helps us do that. And then suffering may result in praise and glory and honor to God. 
I've shared this before about how when I was seven years old, my dad was killed. And for my whole life, you know, I, I struggled. I was like, how am I going to deal with this? Why is this good? And I learned an important lesson years ago, about 11, 12 years ago, when I worked at Bethesda Mission Youth Center. I remember one time I was sitting in a room, and I had about, we, we separated the guys and the girls, and I had about 50 um, boys from middle school and high school age all over Harrisburg. And I don't even know how we got on this topic, but somehow we, we got to the, to the forefront that out of the 50 boys in that room, we had one, one who lived with their mother and father. And what's even crazier was that one who lived with their mother and father had a brother who was sitting next to him. And the brother, because he was born in another relationship before the mom and dad came together, he couldn't even say the same thing as his own brother who was sitting next to him. And I remember looking at the sea of young people, and it finally dawned upon me that whatever suffering I've been through by being raised by a single mom, that if I give it to God, he can use that for his glory. And I'm telling you this morning, whatever suffering you're going through, if you're willing to give it to God, he will use that for his glory, for his honor, and to help the kingdom. Because our trials and our suffering help us to truly see God. You know, today is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And it's important for us to say our trials are not their trials. We suffer from all sorts of different kinds of suffering. We're blessed that for most of us, we will never be imprisoned for our faith. We will never be kidnapped like those girls in Nigeria for their faith. We will never have to experience violence and torture. We'll never have to experience death for our faith. Just this week, I, we learned, if you were following along, that there was another shooting for a bus that was going to a monastery of Coptic Christians in Egypt. And it's the second time over the course of a year, and that little monastery has now lost 36 people because of their faith. Christians around the world are suffering from public humiliation, social isolation, when your entire network believes something different and you choose to follow Christ and you're on an island by yourself. They suffer worship restrictions, not even allowed to say the name of Jesus, not even allowed to meet together. You know, when I think about Christians around the world suffering, I think about two friends of mine. One is like a movie character, I kid you not. She's ridiculous. She's one of the few people I know who almost has like this photographic memory. But the thing that's special about her is she's one of two people I know of, right, who opened up the Bible in Genesis 1 sat there and read the whole thing, got the revelation, put it down and says, you know what, I believe in Jesus. I find that fascinating because it would have lost me in Leviticus. Right? Like, I would have been like, we need to take a break. But you see, her story is fascinating because her father was a chief, a Muslim chief. And he knew she was brilliant, so he would always entertain her questions. And he wanted her to be well-read and learned. And he made the mistake of giving her a Bible because he didn't think it was anything to fear. And after she read it and chose to follow Jesus, it broke her father's heart. And she believes that he died of a broken heart. But even worse than that, after she chose to follow Jesus, her first brother was killed for her insubordination. And then a couple weeks later, the second brother was killed. And finally, her uncle had to sneak her out of the country. And when I think about my friend, and I think about all the suffering she's been through, I'm empowered by her because to this day, she's now preaching to the people who wanted to kill her. She's preaching to people who have killed her people. And she's saying, Jesus is alive. Jesus is good. You may hurt me, but it's for God's glory. And I will tell you about Jesus Christ. You know, I think about my other friend who, when we were in college, was moved by just a simple verse of let the little children come to me. 
but his heart was moved not just by children in America, but he was especially moved by children around the world who were thrown out. We call them street kids as if that's like something nice to say about someone. And he was so moved that he started an organization that works all across North Africa, taking kids off the street, not just telling them about Jesus, but teaching them a trade so that they can have a better life. This is what he's doing. and He's younger than me. He's one of my heroes. And I remember a couple of years ago, his one after-school program was burned to the ground. Every single building they had raised money to fund these kids to go to the after-school program, everything was burned to the ground. I remember talking to him, he says, they may burn the buildings to the ground, but they will only feel our fire for Jesus Christ. Our trials may not be their trials, but there is something that we can do. I think the first thing that we need to do is we need to grow in our awareness of what's happening around the world. So much of our Christianity is so insular, right? And we're in farm country still. So, so much of our Christianity is about building silos, right? And I use this a lot so you you'll eventually will get it, right? We've spent so much energy storing up and storing up and storing up for me and mine. But I think there's got to be something about this body of Christ thing that forces us outside of ourselves, and if it forces us outside of ourselves and we learn about the stories of our brothers and sisters who are suffering, number one, if we're truly the body of Christ, when they suffer, we suffer. When they hurt, we hurt. When they're being killed, we're being killed. We need to learn their stories. And we live in a day and age where you have the Google. You can do it. It's not that hard. Just type in world persecution of Christians. I guarantee you'll find something. We need to grow in awareness. And then once we get that awareness, we have to learn their stories and tell their stories. One of the things I've learned as an outsider who became an American in this culture, we have this unhealthy fascination with the military. And I guarantee you, all of us in this room, without thinking about it, can name five to seven military generals. But how many of us can name five to seven people who've died for Jesus Christ? Right? We can name people who are great presidents, maybe, or great world leaders who've built these earthly kingdoms that will all pass away. But how many of us can name five to seven people who've abandoned everything to follow Jesus Christ, even to the point of death? We have to learn their stories, but my sisters and brothers, we have to tell their stories. My dream is not for my girls to say Barack Obama was great, but I want them to know who Polycarp was. Right? I want them to know who Stephen was that we read about earlier. That's what inspires me. We need to take their story because their story is our story, and that's how we're going to inspire. We want to teach a generation that the faith matters. You have to give them heroes that died for the cross, that gave it all to follow Jesus. We have to learn their stories. The last one is we can bless them with our support. I remember I had a friend who um, ironically was a, a treasurer at a church. I remember having dinner with him one time, and I was just there to eat chicken, you know? And my friends had this weird thing where they're not sure if I'm their friend or their pastor. So he was just like, hey, I'm thinking about stopping tithing. And my first thought was like, aren't you the treasurer of the church? Like, outside of my own personal stake in this, right? Like, outside of the fact that, like, I work at a church and tithes are actually good for the ministry and pay me, right? Like, yeah, like, I was trying to keep myself out of it, but I'm like, Let's talk about this, right? And I remember my friend was struggling because in his head he had made this competition. Like, I go to this huge church and I don't see where my dollars are going, but I can help these 50 kids here in this country and I know where my dollar is going. And I remember saying, listen, it doesn't have to be a competition, right? God calls you to do both. And honestly, you got to figure out how to do both. And I'm grateful that my friend years later is sponsoring more than 50 kids and he's back again tithing to his church. 
Why I bring that up is that we have to support our sisters and brothers around the world. So not only do you have to grow an awareness about what's going on, not only do you have to share their stories, but you have to know what they're struggling with and how you can support them. And sometimes that's financially, but here's the thing. That little $10 to you might be a meal for a week, and you can release that, right? We can give up Starbucks. I don't drink coffee, but some of you heathens do. We can give up Starbucks for a week or two. It's all right. It's fine. You'll get over it. But we can support them financially. And then lastly, we can pray for them. We can pray for them. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how prayer is personal. We got to be honest. We got to be vulnerable. Prayer is conversational. We have to, to listen to God and not just give him our whole list. We said prayer is invitational. That prayer can grow your faith. It can grow your trust. It can grow your dependence. It can grow your relationship with God. But here's the thing, sisters and brothers. If we're going to pray for the persecuted church, we have to make it personal. Because I can say, you know, God, please pray for those people over there that are suffering. God will do the work. But I am not in prayer. It has to be personal. It has to be personal. And it has to be conversational. One of the greatest gifts in my life was this line that Paul puts in a lot of his epistles. I thank my God upon remembrance of you. So what I've done over the last forever, as I can think about it, is I was like, did Paul really do that? Like, every time someone comes to mind, he thank God for them? Because I don't do that. Like, when someone cuts me off, they come to mind. I don't thank God for them, right? Confession. But what I think we can all do as Christians, if we're going to be intercessors, is when people do come to mind, just say thank you to God for them. I think that's an easy way you can start interceding. But then the last one, and we'll end with this. What I've learned in life is that when I pray, God grows my faith, he grows my trust, he grows my dependence, he grows my relationship with him. But I've also learned that when I pray for others, God saves them. Because here's the truth about intercessory prayer, my sisters and brothers. All of us in this room, we're only here because someone else prayed for us. All of us in this room, we're only saved and know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done because other people prayed for us. So intercessory prayer isn't something that like, oh, that's a fancy thing. No, no, no. It's something we're all called to do. And it's something we all have to do. And I like to call up the worship team. We're going to close with this song, I Surrender All. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors, and we'll pray for you for anything that you need. But what I was thinking about to end this this morning is I realized that our prayers are surrendering to God. Because when you pray to God, you're saying, God, I'm not in control, you are. God, I can't move, you can. God, I don't know what to do, praise you that you do. We have to learn to surrender. So I want to close in prayer, and I want us to sing this song, I Surrender, afterwards, because I think surrendering isn't just a song that we sing. It's a life that we must lead. Let's pray together. Jesus, teach us to be your disciples. Father, help us to deny ourselves to follow you. Spirit, lead us and help us to take up our cross. Lord, teach us not to lose you trying to save ourselves. Father, help us to surrender all to find you. Spirit, lead us and help us to not gain this whole world, but lose our souls. Savior, come soon with the angels and in glory. Father, give us strength to do all that you have asked of us. Spirit, pray for us, pray in us, pray through us. Pray and help us to give what we cannot keep. 
to gain what we cannot lose. Amen? Let's sing together. All to Jesus I surrender all To Him I freely give I will ever love and trust 